I want to tell you a funny story. My daughter came home the other day and told me that she was at school talking with a fellow Catholic friend and a another girl overheard their conversation and said, oh, what ward do you guys go to? Now, a ward is a Mormon thing. It's a jurisdiction and everyone in that area goes to the same church service. And we live in Utah, so there's lots of Mormons here. And my daughter responded, oh, we're not LDS, which is short for Latter-day Saints. Uh, we're actually Catholic. And the girl's eyes lit up and she was like, wait, Catholic, like that's a thing. Like I, I've heard of Catholics, but I, I, I didn't know that was a real thing. I thought I thought of it was like unicorns or something. <laughs> I laughed so hard when my daughter told me that story. And I said, wait, did you tell her that the Catholic church is the original church or that it's the largest religion in the world or that the Catholic church is about 20% of the world's population? And she rolled her eyes at me. And, you know, I can relate to this girl. When I was in middle school, there was a knock on the door, and there were three really attractive young ladies. They were Mormon missionaries, and they came to tell me about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I had never heard of it. And then they said, well, you've probably seen our temple on the 495 Beltway in D.C. And I was like, oh, you're part of that thing. I, I always thought that was some mystical castle. So I guess, you know, we all think of each other as unicorns. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We are on episode 35. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but to put that in perspective, I have now written 175 pages of script for this podcast. So for me, it's a lot. And speaking of a lot, I just started a new job, and it's been a lot of work. So as I'm finishing up preparing the next few episodes on the Sacrament of Holy Orders, which will be the end of our series on the sacraments, which began way back in episode three, I thought this would be a good time to do another Q&A episode, which I'm trying to do every few months or so. Before I jump into answering questions, let me say that I have just been so touched by those of you who have tuned in and have told me how much you appreciate this podcast. There's a number of you who have gone on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and left a rating and even a comment. One of the most recent comments said, quote, I am enjoying learning about my Catholic faith after having walked away for years and recently returned. God is good, end quote. Amen to that. Barbara, who is one of the patrons of this podcast, posted on one of the episodes about confirmation and said, quote, Justin, this podcast was so insightful. It's been many years since I was with the Catholic Church. However, I never learned what you're teaching, end quote. Well, thank you, Barbara, and a special thanks to you and the many others who are financially supporting this podcast. Bishop Fulton Sheen famously said, quote, there are not 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be, end quote. You know, I'm a newbie to the Catholic Church, so I can't really say with certainty why it is that I see so many Catholics who say things like that. I didn't know this about Catholicism. And I, you know, I guess it's maybe because there's a lot to Catholicism and there's this temptation to go through your confirmation program as a young student. And then after you finish, just stop learning when really you've just begun. So for what it's worth, I'm so happy to provide more help in putting this complex, rich faith tradition in quite literally layman's terms. Now let's get to our first question. This comes from Matt. Matt asks, did you consider becoming Eastern Orthodox in your journey to Catholicism? Well, this is a great question, Matt. Thank you for this. This is also a question I get a lot of. Um, at first, I did not, but then I did. And let me explain a little bit about my journey. I was really looking for a church that was connected to the ancient traditions of Christianity, as well as a church that was global in nature. So that really kind of limited things to either Catholic or Orthodox. 
And uh, just so happens that the closest Catholic church to me is about 11 minutes away. The closest Orthodox church to me was, is like an hour away. So it made practical sense to start off with Catholicism. Now, with that said, I was anti-Catholic and very anti-Pope. Um, and uh, that's a big difference between the Catholic and the Orthodox Church is that the Catholic Church acknowledges that the Pope, um, the the successor of St. Peter, the Bishop of Rome, has primacy in the church, whereas the Orthodox Church sees their bishops more as um, uh, leaders who have equal authority. Uh, so their patriarchs have equal authority there. And that's a major difference. So to be honest, if the if there was an Eastern Orthodox Church within a half hour, that's probably where I would have started and maybe even become Eastern Orthodox. But I'll explain in just a minute why I'm glad that I became Catholic. You know, as I studied church history, my sentiments about the Pope and the hierarchy changed. I saw things like, man, these bishops really kept the church together in a time where heresy was rampant, where there were lots of power struggles and people saying, I'm the bishop of such and such, I'm the bishop of such and such. And had it not been for these bishops, had it not been for uh, particularly the Bishop of Rome, a lot of these heresies would have flourished. But the bishops were were able to keep Christianity held together with the help of the Holy Spirit in a way that I don't think Christianity would have lasted 200 years if God in his infinite wisdom didn't put this type of structure together. You know, at the end of the day, I really came to appreciate the hierarchy of the church in a way that I hadn't before. And a lot of that came from reading the patristics, particularly um, Eusebius's work on church history. And, uh, you know, I thought, man, I, I was wrong about all these other Catholic doctrines. And yeah, I think I'm wrong about the Pope as well. But, you know, it's a kind of a cop out to say, uh, I'm Catholic because the closest church to me is Catholic. <laughs> and so I really wanted to give Eastern Orthodox a fair shake and ask, you know, is there legitimacy to this? And should I be considering the Eastern Orthodox Church? Well, there are really three things that kept me on the path of the Catholic Church. Uh, one of them is unity. You know, one thing I didn't realize about the Catholic Church is we always call it the Roman Catholic Church. It's like, it's kind of a, that is a misnomer. The Roman Catholic Church is just one faction of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church actually has 23 other particular churches that make up the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is the Western and the largest part of the Catholic Church, but the other 23 are Eastern Catholic Churches. Not Eastern Orthodox, they're Eastern Catholic Churches. These are churches in the East that have come back into communion with the Catholic Church. And so I was really impressed by that. I was like, wow, so the Catholic Church continues to grow. It continues other churches come into communion with it. And also fairly recently, in the last 20 years or so, the Catholic Church set up the ordinariate of um, St. Peter, which allows for Anglican and Episcopalian churches to come into communion with the Catholic Church. So really the Catholic Church is continuing to become more unified. So when I said, hey, what church out there is seriously moving towards unity? Because I really valued unity. Um, I was tired of going to the independent churches and having a denomination that was really only the United States. I wanted I wanted outside voices speaking in to the church, people from Asia and Africa and South America and Australia and so forth. I, and I said, there's really only one church that's seriously doing that, and that is the Catholic Church. Along those lines is that the Catholic Church has a mechanism for decision-making that the Orthodox Church doesn't. Um, the Orthodox Church can call councils, but it's complicated because all of the patriarchs kind of have to agree on things. And um, and really, the Catholic Church is able to 
to make things happen, like bringing these other churches into community um, because they have a hierarchy um, in place. And to me, that, that made me realize that you know what, this hierarchy is actually a good thing. And the the primacy of the Pope, I think, is a positive. But at the end of the day, I had to ask the question, well, you know, great, maybe the primacy of the Pope is reasonable, maybe it's practical, maybe it's helpful, but is it biblical and is it true to tradition? Because that's what I'm looking for here. And as I looked into it, I, I just found that the, the evidence is overwhelming in support that the Bishop of Rome does have primacy, and that we see this apostolic succession with all of the bishops, but particularly with the Bishop of Rome. And so looking at Matthew 16, 17 through 19, where, where Jesus with, is with all his disciples, but says to Peter, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we see this play out in the book of Acts. Um, we see after Jesus' ascension, Peter says, look, we need to replace Judas, and that, and they vote on Matthias. In Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and we see this typology between Peter and Moses, because Pentecost, Shavuot, is the Jewish festival that commemorates Moses receiving the law from God. Remember, Moses received the law, he comes down from Mount Sinai, and there's people committing idolatry. He tells people to strap a sword and go through the camp. 3,000 people are killed that day. Well, what happens at this Pentecost in Acts? The Holy Spirit comes. People begin speaking in tons. Peter gets up and gives a sermon, and what happens? 3,000 people are saved. So we see this primacy of Peter. And I think one really important one is in Acts 10, where Peter leads the first Gentile that we know of, Cornelius, to the Lord and defends eating with Cornelius, eating in a Gentile's home. And it's that testimony that Peter gives that changes the course of Christianity. Before then, they only thought that Jews could be saved. And now they realize that salvation, Jesus' salvation was also for the Gentiles. Um, but then, you know, we see this in uh, Clement's letter to the Corinthians, as well as Irenaeus's work against heresies, particularly in book three, chapter three, which talks about this apostolic succession. And he specifically names out Peter, then Linus, then uh, Anacletus or Cletus, and then Clement as the bishops of Rome. So, I just found that to be compelling evidence to say this is, yeah, you know what, there is evidence that the Bishop of Rome has primacy in the church, and this is seen in scripture as well as tradition in the patristics, and uh, this is why I'm Catholic and not Eastern Orthodox. So thank you, Matt, for that question. The second question comes from Barbara. How do you reconcile your Catholic faith with your Sabbatarian upbringing? Well, Barbara, thank you for this question. It's a very personal question, um, but I hope to answer it here. So my background, for those of you who don't know, I grew up as a Seventh-day Baptist. Seventh-day Baptist is similar to an, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist, only in that they believe in keeping holy the Seventh-day Sabbath, what we call Saturday. Um, and there are a number of Sabbatarian groups out there, and this is what I grew up with. Now, uh, there are some common objections across uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Orthodox will all use the same objections to the seventh-day Sabbath. 
for one, Romans 14.5, which says one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers it every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Um, they'll also point to Colossians 2.16, uh, where it says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And they'll note that the Lord's Day is something that's introduced in Scripture. Now, as a Sabbatarian, I would I would do a counter argument. I would I would object and I would say, well, Romans and Colossians refer to the Levitical feast, and even the mention of Sabbath here is a high Sabbath, where the Jewish feast falls on on Saturday. That's considered a high Sabbath. He Paul is not talking about the regular weekly Sabbath because the regular weekly Sabbath isn't just a Levitical feast; it's enshrined in the Ten Commandments. And regarding the Lord's Day, I would say that it's vague in Scripture. We don't see this. This distinction where I mean, we see the mention of it, we see um, we can defer some practices in it, but it's not negating the seventh day Sabbath as the requirement for Christians. And then uh, something else that we would say without really being uh, educated on it, we would say that the Sabbath was officially changed by Constantine to coincide with the worship of the sun god. So these were some of the counter arguments that I said. You know, I'll be honest in saying that even when I left the Seventh-day Baptist Church, which was about 20 years ago, um, I wrestled with the idea of the Sabbath. I, I didn't leave the Seventh-day Baptist Church because of the Sabbath issue. I left for other reasons. And I was always kind of trying to justify why it is that I went to church on Sunday, and it never really felt like I had a great answer until I became Catholic. Because when I became Catholic, you know, you, you learn to read Scripture with the tradition of the church. You learn to read scripture, then read the early church fathers and how they understood scripture to gain that context. And one of the things that I I understood right away was that the early church record clearly shows the common practice of worship on the Lord's Day. Um, we see this in the Didache, which is considered to be the first catechism or the first teaching manual of the church. Some put it as old as some of our New Testament writings, um, but certainly not older than the early second century. So, for example, in the Didache, it says, but every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. And he goes on from there. Well, that brings up the question, is the Lord's Day definitively the first day of the week? And we don't have to go very far to see that. And Justin Martyr in the in the middle of the second century said, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And he, he keeps going on and says, but Sunday is the day on which we hold, all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. So when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, this is very clear uh, that the Christians saw the resurrection as this so so monumentous of an event that it became the center focus of worship. So you have this, the fasting on Fridays and then the worship on Sundays. It was like they, they wanted to relive the Holy Week every single week of the year. And so 
And so as part of that, having Sunday as being the day of corporate worship and Friday as a day of fasting and so on, and entering into that tradition week after week after week. And, you know, regarding Constantine, you know, as I understood how doctrine develops in dogma, it just became a laughable argument. It wasn't like the idea of corporate worship on Sunday was introduced at the time of Constantine at all. It was clearly, clearly what the church was doing for the 300 years leading up to Constantine. So uh, I just think that people who say those things about Constantine and Constantine ruined the church and all of this stuff is just giving Constantine far too much credit. Uh, and when you read the record of Christianity, that, that's just it's just abundantly clear. The next question comes from Ralph. How did you reconcile your Protestant beliefs with the Marian dogmas? Well, Ralph, thank you for your question. I'll begin by saying that I started out being very uncomfortable with the Marian dogmas and with um, the devotion to Mary, uh, because as a Protestant, you know, we don't highlight Mary. We think of her as just another woman. I mean, a very special woman who was called by God to bear the Messiah. That's an important distinction. But I think that Protestants are afraid that by giving Mary more credit, giving her more devotion, giving her more of a place of honor, we're in some way taking away from the importance of Jesus. As a Catholic, they see this very differently. And, and once I understood this, I came to really understand and appreciate the Catholic and the Orthodox position on Mary and their devotion to her. Um, what we see is that everything that we believe about Mary comes from Jesus. And so as we amplify Mary, we're actually amplifying Jesus. And let me give you an illustration of this. So there's four dogmas in the Catholic Church related to Mary. These are the four Marian dogmas. They are that Mary is the mother of God, the Theotokos, that Mary was immaculately conceived, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, and that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. Now, regarding the first one, the Theotokos, this came from the Council of Ephesus in 431. And they weren't even there to talk about Mary. They were, they were talking about one of the heresies that came up saying that Jesus was not fully divine. And as part of this, as part of the rejection of that heresy and a part of the teaching of the church, they said, you know what? Jesus was so divine that Mary is the mother of God. That's what Theotokos means. It's the Greek mother of God. So Mary is the mother of God. And by by calling Mary the mother of God, we're actually amplifying Jesus. So all of the Marian dogmas come from a place that begins with Jesus. Who is Jesus? And therefore, who is Mary? So for example, uh, Catholics call Mary the Ark of the New Covenant. Why do they call Mary the Ark of the New Covenant? Because she bore the bread of life, the word of God, and the great high priest. What was in the Ark of the Covenant, that gold box? Manna from the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's budding staff. So I hope that you can see that as we amplify Mary, instead of diminishing her, we're actually saying more about who Jesus is. But the other thing that's been really helpful for me in embracing Mary and her role in our world even today is the understanding of the communion of saints. When you understand the communion of saints and that people just don't die and become impotent, they partner with God. They're more alive in heaven and they're partnering with God on in heaven just as we partner with God on earth. 
that God still uses those saints in heaven, particularly his mother. And what we see in um, what we see in scripture is that wherever Mary is, there's Jesus. So at the wedding of Cana in John 2, Mary's pointing out the need for wine. And what does she say to the waiters? Do whatever Jesus tells you to do, right? And so in the same way, she's always pointing people to Jesus. And that really helped me understand, too, um, things like these Marian prayers, like the Hail Mary. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death, of our death. You know, we're asking Mary to intercede on on our behalf, which really comes from that idea of the communion of saints. And really the idea, too, the Marian apparitions, you know, I never knew what to make of those. But when you realize that those Marian apparitions brought millions and millions of millions of people to Jesus, you realize that her role is still the same thing. She's still bringing people to Jesus. She's still telling people today, do whatever he tells you. So I've really come to embrace these Marian dogmas. I think they're beautiful. They don't distract me from Jesus. No, quite the opposite. They bring me closer to Jesus. So thank you for that question, Ralph. Hey, before I sign off, let me share with you a few things that we have up ahead. First, the next episode will be an interview with Daniel Markham on his book, 52 Masses. He traveled the U.S. and attended Mass in all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, and he just writes beautifully about it. I actually met him at the cathedral in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and so I I was thrilled to interview him once he finished the book. So please stay tuned for that. Then we're going to conclude our long series on the sacraments with a few episodes on the Sacrament of Orders, and I'll even have at least one interview for that as well. And uh, then we're going to get into some other Catholic doctrines, starting with salvation. What do we believe about salvation, and why do we even practice these sacraments? And then down the road, we'll get into things related to the church structure, and eventually we'll get on to the topics of Mary, which I just introduced here. So lots more ahead. Please stay tuned. If I may. If you've been blessed by this podcast, would you consider being a financial contributor? It's only a few bucks a month. It helps cover my costs, as well as a portion of every donation goes to supporting Catholic ministries. If supporting this podcast financially is just not in your wheelhouse, I totally get it. You can support it in other ways, including sharing it with your friends, giving it a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and even leaving a little review. If you haven't done so, please join me on Instagram. The handle is whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Hey, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for tuning in. I pray God's immense blessings in your life. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.